Hey everyone, Benji here. Before we jump into the podcast, I want to let you know that at the very end, Elliot shares with us a song he wrote. So stick around. I'm pretty sure you're going to want to. And without further ado, Elliot. And like, find what's in your heart. Find what you love doing that takes care of the land and the water and find other people who are doing that and work together. Hi. I'm Benji Ross. And I'm Anna Perpera. And we want to welcome you to Awakening Lands. Where we aim to give land a voice and share stories of humans who are learning to live in ways that nurture and animate life. Here, you'll find unfolding stories of regeneration that are happening all over the planet. And feel the story of humans learning to come home. We will highlight the people working to create the possibility of regenerating whole landscapes. We're calling these people landscape leaders. The easiest way to spot them is by their devotion to their people and place. They are essential to regeneration, and we want to share their stories in order for them to see one another and for us all to see the pathways they've taken. It's in this way we'll also see entire bioregional narratives coming to life. And we're aiming to do more than tell stories. The Earth needs her humans to come together as one, to become more than we've been. Let's co-create the spaces to do so. Let's author the stories that show us how. Are you in? All right. Hello, everyone. Today we are interviewing Elliot Groen. And Elliot is a native of Burlington, Ontario, but he was raised in the Netherlands and has lived in Sweden and the British Columbia interior. After working for a decade as a chef, carpenter, and farmer, he eventually settled into the environmental field and graduated from Sir Sanford Fleming's Forest Tech Program with the Indigenous Designation Perspective. He has since started his own consulting business, focusing on forestry and ecological restoration, and cooperatively manages sustainable forestry efforts across two land trusts in Ontario. He enjoys leading bioregional learning processes in his community, including guided nature hikes and kinship walks, black ash workshops, and creek and forest cleanups. He has conducted assessments and analyses of local watersheds and regional supply chains and hosted talks with youth and students about community-based learning and local resources to connect with the land. Welcome, Elliot. How are you doing today? Good, good. My last name is pronounced Ruin, uh, which Ruin. means green, related to growing <laughs> or growing, as people pronounce it. And the one organization I work for is the Ontario Woodlot Association, which is a nonprofit and is member-based. Um, so not technically a land trust, but of course, trust is involved. And uh, yeah, I guess I'm doing pretty particular and specific this morning. <laughs> Great. <laughs> um, yeah. And Benji, how are you doing? I'm uh, pretty good. Yeah. Excited for this conversation and and just love that Elliot has arrived today for this conversation from a conifer stand. We're getting to know Elliot pretty well and I guess we should have expected or anticipated this, but thank you for the beautiful view to look at while we talk to you. Yeah. Yeah. Anna, how are you doing? I'm doing very well, thank you. Looking forward to this conversation for sure. I've been lucky enough to meet Elliot a couple of times in person, so it's uh, it's great that we're able to share your story, Elliot. Mm-hmm. So we start these conversations off by sharing a little bit of gratitude. You're somebody who will understand the value of changing state, uh, of creating a different sort of space for us to talk within. And gratitude just opens up that space of of appreciation. 
Uh, so I wonder if, if Anna or Elliot, if you have something on the tip of your tongue, the top of your mind that you'd like to share that you're grateful for. Elliot, you want to start? I see you bobbing up and down. Sure, sure, sure. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'll try this out. And it's, it's what we were just talking about before we started the recording. I'm grateful for the opportunities that I have to live my life as a poem. There's a poem within that poem. It's, mm. it's not about words on a page or spoken. It's about all of the senses that we do and do not understand. And finding a rhythm and a rhyme in those. And yeah, the way that that expressed itself for me this morning was having a sauna and talking to some friends. That friendship talk also had business woven in and out of it. And yeah, just the ability to live. That's what I'm grateful for. Yeah, thank you for that. Well, I just have to say, I feel like, Elliot, uh, you're, especially when you get into your uh, your poetry kind of speech, you, uh, yeah, you definitely have a, a way with words that, like we said before, really takes you places. Today, I'm very thankful for uh, for family. I'm going to be visiting my mother-in-law in a few weeks and being able to spend a lot of time just being present with family and not having to worry about work and other responsibilities and just being able to enjoy the holidays coming up. What about you, Benji? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm grateful for uh, something that happened this morning that was rather simple. Uh, and that is I was looking outside and it looked really cold and really windy. And I had to take the dog out because she's very particular about where she goes to the bathroom. Uh, that's a whole nother story. And I opened the door and it was really nice and warm and the wind was almost pleasant. I'm not one to like really love wind. So that just shifted my mood and my state. So grateful for that. Speaking of shifting us, let's ask some questions. Let's uh, get this conversation going in. And I actually want to start in a way that we didn't anticipate. Perhaps that's appropriate with, with Elliot, uh, but we've already been talking about the folly of words uh, Anna and I, in uh, preparing for this this conversation, talked about how you are like a poet of life. Uh, and we also talked about this certain irony. So we could start with irony, which is fun. And that is you talk so frequently about the folly of words, Elliot, but you are, at the same time are such a poet. I'm wondering if we can just explore that a little bit and if you could share some of your perspective on the folly of words and some of the things that we should be aware of. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, I'll start by saying that folly isn't always a bad thing. Folly Ooh. is a reminder to not take ourselves too seriously and to be joyful. Mm. And if I were to write it as a math formula, like I want to be doing the one plus one. I just want to be, I just want to be past that equal sign. So I think words and, and, is good. Words are good. I enjoy talking. I enjoy exchanging ideas. Also, these words, they're just a pathway to meaning and connection. And I think that as a whole, the kind of culture that I find myself in still relies too much on that mechanical one plus one and isn't hanging out enough. Talking is hard. <laughs> and isn't hanging out enough in that space beyond the equal sign. Hmm. I'm, I'm also thinking about just the different ways that you 
communicate things because you and I, we've, we've talked a lot about incorporating art and experiences into how we translate and transfer knowledge. And that's really important to you too. And the words just don't give as much perspective as say a map would. And I know that you are very, you're very passionate about maps. So I'm wondering if you want to share a little bit about some of the, some of the mapping work that you do and how you see that as being a a great way to communicate with audiences. Yeah. So uh, I've, I've, I've rehearsed this definition quite a bit, so maybe it's getting stale, but maps, they're a guide to get us to where we want to go. And definitely that can include words, but it's like that whole elephant metaphor. If words are the tusks, we also want to be touching the hide and the ears and the interstitial tissue and all of that. I think maps can be interpreted very broadly in terms of there's a lot that is broken in the world that we live in. In order to get us out of that, we can look at stories as maps we can look at art as maps we can look at you know I, I can list a thousand other things that are some type of mechanism that we call a map that takes us from one place and gets us to where we want to go which which might just be a feeling that cannot really be communicated by words but if everybody looks at that piece of art they get it they, they have a similar shared experience that's that's mm-hmm. what's mapped what mapping is about to me and that the potential that I see for maps to to bring us places. You speak of of art as a kind of map. Uh, you said it can uh, create shared experiences. I'm wondering if, if you can elaborate just a bit more on uh, maybe what you see art unlocking. Art is a way to move beyond the limitations of our imagination. And for me personally and what i see reflected in like society the societies (laughs) that i find myself in is that we sometimes get locked into these rigid mechanisms and if we have elements of art if we have elements of of different expression where a meeting can involve like lunch or a meeting can involve a walk or a meeting can involve like taking a break and playing board games. (laughs) A meeting can involve like somebody who's like painting in the background and seemingly it has nothing to do with the, with the meeting, but then all of a sudden you look over and it it creates a different space. I think that's how we come to more well-rounded imaginings for how to structure ourselves as, as people in, in relationship to the places that we are in. I, I really love that answer because I'm I'm being um, reminded of some of the some of the energy that I felt in like the landscape leader retreat in Colorado where we were coming together and I felt us coming from the current world and there was like this unspoken intention for us to open up a new space and to explore what that means and and how do we do that so much of this conversation so far and i'm su- i'm surprised pleasantly surprised that this theme has emerged of of creating space for us to think together differently for us to challenge assumptions and the the importance of of cultivating that intentionally for things to open up 
how did you get the insight uh, to to lean into your artistic ability, your willingness to express yourself to create different spaces for groups? For sure, it was learning to play music. Like, there's so many people that like play music and they think a different way or they listen to music and they think a different way. You know, all of this is very well documented. I also had like artists, even if it was just on a personal level within my family and musicians and, and different styles. Yeah, I, I don't think I'm going to be able to point to one thing or to adequately express everything that went into this. And it's still ongoing. Well, we're, we're honored. Yeah. And we're also <laughs> recognizing the folly of words. I wish I wish people could see you as well, because, you know, there's there's things that you're expressing through um, your facial expressions and just where you are, too. I think that um, just the way that you're speaking about how you you think differently than a lot of people. I'm thinking about how when you have joined meetings with that I have also been on with people who are working in the environmental field. I think that people who are trained in hard sciences and people in general have that tendency to be a, a linear thinker. But when you have joined, it's like you are, first of all, you're very outspoken. So you're not afraid to say what's on your mind and you're not afraid to kind of challenge that status quo. But you also bring things that people just haven't thought of before. I'm thinking of community mapping and how, what you were saying before, how you can tell stories and and energize children to be thinking about just understanding their place a bit more and loving their place more. And those are just conversations that mm -hmm. don't pop up normally. So I think that you just definitely have a different sort of outlook. You have that, that creativity kind of pouring through you and how you... Um, how you express your love for, for land. Is there any way you can provide to us and our listeners some sense of how you became so rooted and aware of the full, the full complexity of the places that you've lived? And if you have any insights or instincts on how like more people can also cultivate this connection intentionally. Yeah, okay. <laughs> There's so much here, but the first place that uh that my mind went to was rites of passage. There was also this feeling that started to creep up in me in my mid twenties that the rites of passage that I'd gone through had not adequately prepared me to take care of myself and to contribute to the communities that I'm a part of in a type of reciprocal relationship. And it was informed by ancestry work that my mom and grandmother had been doing, like since I was a kid, but we got to that next level of, okay, now we can trace back the family tree. Now we also have stories of why people moved continents in my family or, or you know, all kinds of things. <laughs> like my grandfather grew up with like an evil stepmom. There's the lines, but then there's all the stories around the lines that that was starting coming in. And then moving to Sinaixt Tumbulao in the what's called the interior of BC, some of the headwaters of the Columbia River. And really being shocked at my ignorance of not knowing about 
the many, 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 many indigenous histories. And like, I'm linking that in with my own quote unquote indigenous. And like, you know, maybe that needs like more explanation of what I mean by that, but my own in indigenous ancestry. One of the ways to confront that ignorance, which I was guided to by one of my landmates at a land co-op that I was living on at the time. And I would call her like a, a real mentor and friend and, and all of that as well is a similar journey that she had gone through about 20 years before when she moved to that place. And it was a series of uh, decolonization kitchen table discussions where um, a bunch of us got together in town and a bunch of people got together in a, in a group that ran at the same time out in the country. And we just was like, yeah, where am I from? What are my biases? What are my perspectives? In what way am I an accomplice in different levels of violence in society? And what would the world look like? How would I organize my own life if some of these limitations didn't exist? Or just like very broad and very specific questions. And some of the, the questions that, that guided us were prepared about 20 years ago by my friend mentor and her friendship with Marilyn James, who is a Cynics woman who came back to Canada in 1989. And there's a whole longer story there. Uh, it's it's out there because um, they got the Sinaiks people got declared extinct in Canada around the time the dams were going in as part of the Columbia River treaties. They were blasting a road and found human bones at what was an ancient burial ground and village site. So a conclusion that that came out and something that I that I really remember about that kitchen table series, which was a form of uh, of rite of passage was uh we had a potluck where, where two group the two groups came together together with with marilyn james and the way that she translated the the traditional laws was take care of your own shit and then be of service to others and like find what's in your heart find what you love doing that takes care of the land and the water and find other people who are doing that and work together Oh, that says so much uh, about the, the depth and the, the complexity of individual relationships uh, with landscapes. Uh, you brought in your own family tree and, uh, and the stories uh, that brings, the histories that that brings to life. Uh, helps to see how, how you are showing up uh, in a particular place. Uh, really does provide the, the backdrop for how we can then understand where we're coming from in relationship to the land. And then, of course, you brought in the need to orient ourselves to, you know, the human histories that, that already exist uh, as a sort of rite of passage, as a, a starting point for how to relate to land and place uh, in the right way. Um, I think that, that says a lot about bioregional learning. Uh, I think it's this is really orienting. Uh, this is an orienting way of thinking about it, of, of introducing it. Uh, and we, we plan to ask you a couple questions about some of your gatherings and philosophy around bioregional learning. But before that, we can't go into the topic of bioregional learning without first exploring you and your relationship to plants, uh, without exploring Elliot the Forester. Uh, so... I'd like to spend a, a bit of time exploring that. You've shared an origin story with us about how you first cultivated 
um, I suppose pun intended, this relationship. Uh, I'm wondering if you can share that and that story and, and what plants taught you and the role they serve in your life. Uh, and then we can maybe meander into how you became a forester. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting way of framing that. So I was working as a chef and for various reasons, <laughs> including the chef work was starting to feel very burned out. And yeah, I guess just intuitively how I started to remedy that, or at least provide a bandaid to that was figuring out what plants that were growing around me that I could cook with. So it was literally going out of the apartment in Sweden at the time and being like, huh, what's this plant growing in the crocs of the sidewalk? Oh, it's plantain. Oh, it's dandelion. Oh, it's pineapple weed. And then just like working out by talking to people, by reading books, by searching the internet, taking pictures, ID guides of what these plants were about. And yeah, eating is a very intimate relationship that goes beyond the like, I know the ID features of this plant. It's like, I also know the tastes and I know that, not that I did a lot of it, but I know how there is a difference in what's growing in like the sidewalks versus what's growing in the forest which was versus what's growing in the, in the hedgerows. And yeah, seeing the differences within plants that are of the same species. That was, that was the start of it. Plant, plant by plant. Well, getting to like the bioregional learning, I think it's also interesting that this clearly is still um, a thought process for you because you have posted recently a couple of times about your native plant cookbook idea. And I think that that's, uh, I, I love those posts, by the way. I think that's a great idea talking about what kinds of plants and um, and meats are indigenous to the Great Lakes and how can you incorporate that into a cookbook? Could you share a little bit about that and some of your experimentation? Yeah, it's just, I don't know, <laughs> finding <laughs> in what I'm cooking and part of just my personality, which can be quite intense or like purpose-driven at times. Like when I went and visited Sonora, for the most part, I was just eating prickly pears and oh, a lot of prickly pears, really. There's a lot of different varieties. <laughs> because <laughs> look at them out there in 40 degrees Celsius, whatever that is in Fahrenheit, 110. They're just there and they're full of water. I mean, it was summertime, so it was still pretty hot here where I was in the Great Lakes, a different type of heat, way more humid. But Going to that different place and then eating the prickly pears there, I was able to deal with the heat and like feel good and energized. Hmm. So interesting. I'm also curious how a, a Canadian who lived in um, Sweden and the Netherlands learned how to harvest prickly pear and how not to swallow the the barbs. It's like, how do you learn to talk to a new person? Like the the convention, right? Which isn't the only one. But like, hi, my name is Elliot. How are you doing? Where are you from? Blah 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 blah. <laughs> so it's like the same. It's the same thing with plants and animals as well. Like when I was when when I'm in different places, 
I'll just like look and observe and see how the animals are moving through. Right. So when I came back from harvesting prickly pears, which, which I learned to harvest by observing how the plant grew and how to take it off and then listening to people that had the knowledge of the people who lived there for thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of years and figured out pretty efficient ways of doing it. <laughs> like here, like there's a lot of deer in, in the forest and moose and squirrels and whatnot. So when I'm moving through the forest for some of my work, I'm looking at, okay, how would a deer move through here? And when I was doing that, I was walking through this garden of uh, smooth nettle. I was like sweeping my legs so that I wasn't stepping on the stems of the plant, but that I was sweeping them aside. Mm -hmm. That way I could see how the, the health of the stem, because this was like late August, early September. So things are starting to die back. So I could see which stems were starting to die back more and which ones had smaller, younger, healthier, green, vibrant plants underneath of them. And all the while I was doing this, I was also snacking on the seeds and uh, the little microgreens that grow at the end of these uh, smooth nettle seeds. The Latin name is uh, Bomerica cylindrica. Cylinder like with a dra, D-R-A at the end. So it's just, it's just like getting to know each other. And then being like, okay, now we have some type of relationship. What What's the best way to treat each other in every moment? Well, and it's clear that you you really present yourself in the land. You're you're very aware, and you you observe a lot. Um, and that's that's how your learning is really experiential in a lot of ways. You said that you spent a good deal of time in Interior British Columbia. And you were out there, you met a lot of people through hitchhiking and being out on the land with them. And those relationships really showed you the way to uh, your pathway forward into forestry and ecology. And I'm wondering if you could share some stories about your time out there, how that kind of guided your path into forestry. Yeah. In many ways, I was a little bit lost out there or, or at least discovering myself. And in many ways, I was also just surviving. Part of that survival took the form of hitchhiking because I didn't always have a car, sometimes for personal like choice reasons, sometimes just because I couldn't afford it. So yeah, I grew up in the suburbs outside of a major metropolis and also in smaller villages in the Netherlands where there is not a lot of forestry work going on and because i achieved a certain type of grade in school whether you know this was me just like taking on other people's expectations or whether there was like a certain like pressure to go in a certain direction i thought okay i've got to go to university and the most prestigious university and you know stuff that i was interested in like political science and, and all of that but yeah that wasn't working so now I'm in now I'm in uh, the interior in those mountain ranges and it's like huh I'm meeting uh people that are looking to protect mountain caribou and huh I'm getting a ride and I'm talking to the head of the Ministry of Forestry uh of the local office there and ah I'm really interested in making baskets like just like that's like what I want to do 
And then I get connected through like just going to different places and meeting people and, you know, volunteering and, and like just hanging out with people who have similar interests. Get introduced to uh, Eloise, who is a cedar basket maker. And I mean, she weaves in wolf hair and lichen and <laughs> like mixed media for sure. And she shares with me this video of 20 years ago or something like that, mid 90s, of when her and a group of like, however many other people, 15, 20, took down one tree and made all kinds of different things out of it and brought that to the parliament in Victoria and said, this is what community forestry looks like. It doesn't look like selling the timber in our local watersheds without our consent and our participation. All those different perspectives is like, huh, I really like being in the forest and, and forest like also as a metaphor for complex ecosystems. <laughs> and it doesn't always have to have trees. I really like being out here and I'm seeing so many different perspectives. And I think here is how I can contribute to that. That brings me to volunteering with a, a watershed organization. And in the meantime, I had gotten a herbalist diploma, which I, I guess provided some legitimacy. A, a lot of my learning was outside of that as well. And this uh, for the small organization, which was just four or five women in that small town that were looking to have a community forest where there was still selective harvesting of timber, but also education and recreation and uh, looking at what products could be made from like the herbs and the mushrooms and all of that and how that can, could sustain a local economy that maintained the integrity of their watershed. Because you can drink out of the creeks there. Like People are getting creek water pumped right or piped, <laughs> not even gravity, <laughs> no pumping, wow. right, piped right into their homes. And they wanted to maintain that. So, yeah, I did an assessment uh, of their watershed, of all of the edible, medicinal, and usable plants and fungi that I could find. And then because of the way that the legislation is written, where if you have the license on Crown land and there's no treaty sign, and anyways, different levels of legitimacy and illegitimacy there. But if you have a lease on Crown land, so-called Crown land, you need to be making revenue off of it. So then I also went and did kind of like a real basic level market analysis of you harvest this type of herb, and if you make it into a tincture or a salve, it's a value-added product that could be sold for roughly this, and these are the, the market averages. That combined with some things in my personal life was like, okay, it's time to go back to school and get some like certifications and whatnot behind my name so that I can contribute in a more like meaningful way to, uh, to places like that. What a great backstory in terms of your natural progression of being curious about plants, being lost, being in some sense, networking really effectively by hitchhiking. I think you got to be in smaller towns maybe, but then learning about the forest, learning about these different approaches, different perspectives, different stories and people who are in various ways caring for the forest, which led to community forestry experiencing that showed you how many different ways humans can interact with the forest in healthy ways. I'm just wondering, like you're, you're gathering people on the ground um, in Ontario. I'm just wondering if you could sort of paint a picture of, of what these gatherings look like for you and, and how you're bringing your experience from forestry into them. 
if, if I see and feel and all those other senses, how a forest inspires awe and joy and connection in me because of its like particular expression of structural and biological diversity, then not just like by having some forestry education, but, but it, it is informed by that. And then mimicking and emulating those patterns to how we gather as humans that's that's kind of the the philosophy so that that each part of that gathering allows for we're never going to get full right but as close to like a full expression of of life and yeah life creates life since we're talking about the stuff that you've been doing on the ground and what you can bring that background that you're bringing i'm interested to hear we're both in the Great Lakes. I'm wondering if, from your perspective, do you see any particularly important unfolding storylines or what the potential is for regenerating the Great Lakes? If if I was writing a book, this would be the next chapter or, or the chapter that we find ourselves in. Yeah, we don't know all of the foreshadowing that's already happened, but it, it may become clear. And it relates to the precariousness. I I think the the biggest piece that needs to happen for regeneration is moving out of this precarious system where people that are doing all kinds of different uh, regeneration work, whether that's like with people in concrete or with trees and forests, like, or any of the other thousand and one ways, that that isn't based on, am I going to be okay six months from now? Mm-hmm. Yeah. What about paying my, like, in order to have some type of security, I need a mortgage. And I'm not saying, like, overthrow the whole mortgage and private landowner type uh, type of system that we have. But how do we build security and resilience into the ways that we support support and also like allow more people to do regeneration work? Yeah. Mm-hmm. You have so many interesting networks too. What are some of the the qualities or the backgrounds that you're seeing that are kind of that theme of people who are able to support themselves in this way? Oh, yeah, I think this is where the precariousness comes in. But it's people that care very deeply. Yeah. It's people that care very, very deeply. They'll like they'll really extend themselves above and beyond what is required for the like nine to five or whatever it is. And for the people that kind of like burn out or, or whatnot of this type of work, it's it's just because like, they care so deeply and they're pushing so hard and getting frustrated by some of these rigid systems or like I have to deliver on a grant and I only have six months to do this and it takes like three months worth of admin or like whatever it is to, to realize the funding. So it's definitely something that I'm just thinking about a lot now, which is why it's coming out in this answer. People that care a lot. Yeah. Well, I think we're touching on something that's, really central it's a central storyline in regeneration uh if i could just name it real quick it's the the balance between security and 
and aspiration, security, and the the striving to um, see and unlock potential. And I think this exists with individuals and it exists with groups. I think that the people that you see who are super devoted already, who are willing to mm, navigate uh, a, a life with uh, a, just a minimal veil of security, uh, they're the ones who feel the potential more fully. I mean, it's like, it's, it's right there, right? So I've just, I want to keep doing what I can to, to animate it, to bring it to life. We need to support those people because those are the people who are really helping us to learn, who are driving the leading edge of regeneration. But also, how do we as groups create contexts where we have greater security so more people are willing to participate uh, in this process of, of local regeneration? Uh, this is a theme that's been coming up in a few of our conversations, actually. Um, I'm wondering if uh, if this is bringing any anecdotes forth for you, if you're seeing it similarly or differently? Yeah, definitely. Having that, doesn't have to be a fix, but having that principle of strategy of how we link these different projects, these different forms of regeneration to each other. This this position that I have with the Woodlot Association and with one of the land trusts here, the Cork Land Trust, I don't know many other people that work for two different organizations. And those two different organizations also allow me to run my own business for projects that don't necessarily fit within the funding or the mandate. That's <laughs> a lot of administrative work sometimes or, or complexity to navigate. <laughs> but uh, like, yeah, just personally what I can really speak to, it's like, yeah. I think, that's part of the next level. It's like we have diplomats between nation states. In some places, we still have people that are, and I'm, these are just like words and metaphors that are diplomats. They're the go-between between certain plants or certain animals or whatever, the water. <laughs> the, <laughs> they're the go-between between the Great Lakes and their community. And and they're a part of these, like, yeah, so anyways, uh, that's kind of what I see as, as that, that next level. And, and my anecdote is like, this is what I'm trying out. I got this offer for a shared position between two organizations that have similar goals and also like the odd little project on either side that they needed somebody to take on. And yeah, that's what I've been trying out since April. So for the last, uh, seven, seven months. Well, and it fits your your weaver personality and perspective so well. I know that I've asked you in the past because you also, while you're also working this job, uh, that's that kind of that halfway between two organizations, you're also running your own business and you also dedicate quite a bit of time in helping others uh, exploring with with people in your bioregion, but also exploring with people from the design school for regenerating earth. You're helping me. Um, we're doing work together. You, you supported a project in, um, in superior Arizona. And I've asked you like, how are you managing all of this? And you, I remember you told me that it's all about integrating all of these different projects, weaving it into one and making it coherent across all that you're doing. 
Um, and that kind of struck strikes me as your um the process that you're trying to go through is you're you're saying that you're uh you're like trying to form strong nodes and you're the connector between other nodes. I'm wondering if you can kind of talk about your philosophy there. It's like stars and constellations. A node is that individual star. And we need those stars to be shining bright in order for us to see the relationships between the stars, which we talk about as constellations and give certain shapes. And and finding those other people to do it with is is forming those those relationships. You've been hosting some some interesting looking gab and sounding gatherings lately. I'm wondering if you could paint a picture of of something that you've done with people on the ground or in someone's living room now that it's getting a little colder or, or anything that's coming up to you. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, I'll I'll give an example of of one. And this was where a group of us got together and uh, through the land trust, we have uh, conservation corps interns and they go like on a sea kayaking journey and hang out for a week and kind of like push their boundaries. That's phase one of the project. And I'm sure there's all kinds of training and whatnot. I haven't gone through the program, but from what I gather, that's kind of phase one. And then phase two is a three month internship with some type of conservation organization and just like learn what they do and how they do it. And then for phase three in this program, the people have got to take everything that they've learned and bring a project back to their home community. Uh, so the young fellow that we have with us now, <laughs> I'm talking like I'm real old, but I'm not. He's <laughs> like probably only a few years younger than me. Uh, and very like skilled and capable and uh, all of that. He wants to build hawk nesting platforms for uh, an endangered hawk species. How I linked that to one of my own projects is we have all of this, all of these trees that need to be thinned out for the health of some of these planted forests in this area here. And some of them have logistical and economic constraints. Like that work hasn't been happening. This is like a 20, 30 year problem in some cases. The entire forest can blow down because the live crown ratio gets reduced and blah, 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 blah technical information. <laughs> so a solution is to use smaller scale equipment and to find, find or link up to other markets than the ones that are being used by most uh, commercial operators in this sector. We did a milling workshop. Uh, I have a portable sawmill. We did a milling workshop from some trees that I salvaged from a windstorm and we built a platform for the hawk. And then we went into the forest and we talked about structural and biological diversity and how this area was clear cut and then it had cattle grazing in it. So the like resulting forest condition uh, has levels of ecological degradation where like the normal ecological processes that play out that sustain and enrich life are not happening there and how we as humans can be keystone species in this process to kind of activate those processes again. And that took the form of thinning out some ironwood to release uh, species like cherry and hickory, which are in, in lower abundance and provide a lot of uh, wildlife benefits. So we just opened up the crown a little bit by thinning out some, uh, some ironwood poles. And then we constructed those into like a big teepee tripod with 
uh, rungs that we lashed on so that we could raise the hog platform there. And then my friend who joined us for the day, uh, she brought some silk screening things. So we made different silk screening at the end of the night uh, or into the afternoon and the night. And, you know, we shared lunch together. And it's just one of those, we're doing a bunch of things that are all separate and they all in some way contribute to the work that we're doing, but we're linking them together. We're just like figuring out ways to get work done. That's enjoyable and it makes sense and it allows us to like grow in our appreciation and understanding of everything. Yeah, uh, it's, a, it's a great story. And borrowing some of your terminology, it sounds like you're bringing together some strong nodes, some strong bioregional learning nodes, which create, which really advances like the leading edge of bioregional learning. I'm just deriving so much inspiration from it myself, hearing about it, hearing about humans as stewards. And another theme that's been coming up in some of our other conversations is coming up for me now, and that is the accessibility of this, this inspiring story of optimism, of having the potential of, of being a species that is good for the landscape and how hungry young people in particular, but really I think everybody is for these kinds of stories. I wonder if, are you uh, including opportunities for more people who might not have access because it seems like this would be just really impactful for for people who might not otherwise be aware of this kind of thing to drop into this experience of strong nodes of bioregional learning actually doing good things for the forest. I feel like that could be transformative. <laughs> this this is why I'm talking about that precariousness of funding. Yeah. I've gotten to this like I've also been very stubborn and tried to do things by myself and not ask for help and all of that. Yeah. And uh yeah, not saying that I'm perfect by any means now, but I feel like by learning from my mistakes and also just learning from from good successes and good people doing good things, I, I've gotten to a point now where I could lead a team of like four, eight or 30 people. And we could start to then engage school groups in more meaningful ways. The next project that I'd really like to take on these forests that need to be thinned or like, you know, urban trees that are coming down due to emerald ash borer, how we can memorialize in a way that also contributes to rehabilitating members of society that are in precarious situations and may need transitional housing. How do I just contribute that little sliver that I can in terms of like me to some degree being responsible for some of the human relationships uh, with forests. So having more people that like are willing and capable with within their own ways, that's, uh, that's where I'd like to go. And that all sounds wonderful too. Um, and as you said, can't do it all alone. Uh, is there somewhere where our listeners can go to either support the work that you're doing or to learn more about the work that you're doing? Yeah. Um, so the one organization I work for, the website is ontariowoodlot.com. And then the other one is the Kawartha Land Trust. There's so much else. Like Those are just like the organizations that, that I work with and is on the tax receipt. I could refer you to like so many other different places rather than those, just, just those two. We're going to uh, include all these links in the show notes too. So we can, uh, you can send those over to us as we start 
thinking about what other resources we could share. Cool. So we want to begin the ritual of asking people at the end if there was anything that we missed. I don't think we missed anything. And uh, this this mantra, I can't give credit to like any specific person, but it's definitely come out of my involvement with the design school. We don't have to be comprehensive if we are coherent. And yeah, I don't know. I'm just standing in the forest here and talking. <laughs> You'd be a better judge of like if there is some coherence in, in how we've been uh, talking with each other. There definitely has. Yeah, definitely. So thank you for joining us today, Elliot. Um, you always inspire. Likewise. That's kind. Yeah, thanks, yeah. Elliot. But, uh, the warm winds, if they're still out there. Yeah, oh, I'm going to go look for them. And uh, yeah, I'm sure I'll see you. Sounds yeah, good, buddy. Not here in the Northeast, that's for sure. But yeah, have Bye. a good day, Elliot. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Bye. 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 Thanks for listening. If you're feeling a jolt of inspiration, if you'd like to support Anna and me in our ongoing efforts to tell these stories, you can donate to us on our Patreon at Awakening Lands. Links for all of this can be found in the show notes. Thanks, and please tell your landscape we said hello. And as promised in the beginning, if you have another few moments, please stick around while Elliot plays a melody that might just weave together a bit of forest. Protect these forests, the northern lungs of this planet Cause 
all need to breathe and we can't breathe profit of these greedy actions with no future yeah thought well my thought is that i am pro us fitting and benefit yeah as a species let us use our imagination working with the forest to provide food shelter and medicine instead of teaching survival of the fittest let kindness erupt in our consciousness Everything has value, the seen and unseen The big and small in this universal song Yom namo paskupati namaha Yom namani namaha Expressions teaching its kind how to live in balance with the environment. The caribou made the highways here before we poured all of this pavement. So gather my seeds, I get down on my knees. I am planting the highway, true and profound. I'm talking about the trees and flowers and mycorrhizae growing in the ground. And we have blocked the bridges, we have stood upon the roads to defend this land of the mountain and the toad. But I pray that we don't have to. I pray for the clear perspective to infuse us so we can all get along and return the earth to its green glory. It has never really been gone. Spread from the old places, sprout from the new places. It has been here all along. Return the earth to its green glory. We are all patches in this triumphant burden sea. Chewing.